I'm Wolf Blitzer. This is CNN Tonight. We want to welcome our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm not walking anything back. That vow from President Biden today, getting defensive in his first extensive explanation of his ad lib heard around the world this weekend. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. That remark about Vladimir Putin at the close of President Biden's address in Poland on Saturday has been looming over his White House ever since. It's had some aides scrambling to counter interpretations. The president was signaling the U.S. would be actively seeking regime change in Russia, but he says that's not what he meant. I'm not walking anything back. I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel, and I make no apologies for it. Nobody believes we're going to take down. I was, going to, I was talking about taking down Putin. The last thing I want to do is engage in a land war or a nuclear war with Russia. It's more an aspiration than anything. He shouldn't be in power. There's no, I mean, th- people like this shouldn't be ruling countries, but they do. The fact they do, but doesn't mean I can't express my outrage about it. The president says he wasn't talking about taking Putin down, although his rhetoric on Russia's leader has only been toughening by the day. He's now called Putin, and I'm quoting him, a butcher, a killer, a war criminal, a brute, a pure thug, a murderous dictator, and someone who cannot be in power. He changed that today to shouldn't be in power. But should President Biden stay away from that kind of language? We're going to get the take of a former NATO Supreme Allied commander in just a moment. First, though to the very latest on Russia's brutal invasion. Shelling intensified around the suburbs of the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv today. A defense official there says Russian forces are attempting to block supply routes. New drone footage shows how viciously the Russians are continuing to attack the port city of Mariupol in the southeast. These are more destroyed buildings and homes after very heavy fighting. Russian forces consolidated control around the city, but Ukraine's military says it is maintaining a so-called circular defense. A Mariupol city official will also be with us tonight with what he's hearing. Stand by for that. Meanwhile, Russia is also continuing missile strikes in western Ukraine, including in the city of Lutsk. That's where massive fires have been raging. The next round of talks between the two countries will be held tomorrow in Turkey. But there is certainly no peace or any ceasefire in the meantime tonight. Let's go to our senior international correspondent, Fred Plaitkin. He's joining us now from Kyiv, the, the capital. Fred, as we hear these reports from Ukraine's deputy defense minister that Russian forces are trying to block supply routes to the capital, what does that increase uh, in shelling look like on the ground? You're there. Well, it's pretty constant. And I would say that the operations that we see here on the ground certainly have picked up pace. And it's been quite interesting over the past week or so, Wolf, and that we have seen a lot of shelling, but that seems to have increased once more. In fact, the video uh, that we're seeing right now, that's from when we went to one of the suburbs uh, above Kiev, north of Kiev. And there, uh, the residents tell us that uh, the Russians really haven't been able to make much headway on the ground, but they've just unleashed this massive shelling on these suburbs, obviously destroying a lot of the houses that are on the ground there. 
there. And that's also what we saw throughout the entire day today, Wolf. It's been a day of air raid sirens, but first and foremost, it's been a day of massive shelling. We've heard it the entire day, and we also saw it with gigantic plumes of smoke, especially towards the northwest of the city. And that's certainly where a lot of the fighting has been concentrating. And one of the things that the Ukrainian forces said today, Wolf, is they said that they've regained 100% full control of the suburb of Irpin. Of course, we've been talking about that place over the past couple of days. It's been highly contested. The Ukrainians now, they say, say they have all of that, but there certainly still is shelling going on. And they also say, as you rightly point out, Wolf, that the Russians apparently are trying to make corridors around the city. That was a deputy defense minister seeming to suggest that they're trying to, to, to stop Ukrainian supply routes. So far, the Ukrainians say they're pushing back on that. They've stopped any sort of attempts at Russian advances and are launching counteroffensives uh, themselves. And they say those have been quite effective, Wolf. What's the status uh, tonight, uh, Fred, of Mariupol, uh, which is certainly key to connecting Russian-held territories in the south and east? Yeah, you know, there's been some confusion throughout uh, t today when uh, the mayor of Mariupol, uh, in a statement, uh, was quoted as saying, we are in the hands of the oppressor. And there were some uh, who believed that maybe Mariupol had actually fallen to the Russian military, but uh, that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. As the Ukrainians point out, they still have those circular defensive positions, uh, as they call it. And it seems as though the mayor of Mariupol there uh, was referring to the fact that, of course, these humanitarian corridors that they've been trying to establish uh, depend uh, on large parts on the Russian military because that city is simply encircled. Now, the urgent plea that was, or, that was uttered uh, by the mayor of Mariupol is he says the civilians there really need to get evacuated uh, as fast as possible. There are, of course, still a lot of people in that city, but it is completely destroyed. We keep seeing these images uh, like we're seeing right now of those huge residential buildings just uh, almost annihilated, completely burned out and destroyed. There's no electricity. There's no water. Uh, there's very, very little in the, in, in the way of food. It is a full-on blockade that's going on there. So so certainly an urgent plea, but at the same time, uh, the Ukrainian defenders of that city saying they have not given up. The defense of that city continues, and they certainly say they are going to continue uh, to put up a fight, even as though they are absolutely surrounded by Russian forces, Wolf. Fred Plankin reporting from Kiev, uh, the capital. Uh, Fred, be careful over there. Uh, we will stay in touch. Uh, and here uh, to give us a little deeper perspective on the diplomatic front is the retired uh, U.S. Admiral James Stavridis. He spent four years as the NATO Supreme Allied Commander. He's also the co-author of the book uh, 2034, A Novel of the Next World War. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. Let me get your reaction first to the president's latest remarks, his remarks today essentially doubling down on his view that Putin shouldn't remain in power. He made it clear that it was his own personal feelings and not necessarily official U.S. policy. But does airing a view like this put the U.S. potentially, Admiral, on a more dangerous ground as far as Putin is concerned? I don't think so, Wolf. I mean, let's, let's keep this in perspective. Putin has invaded a neighbor. He's destroyed it. He invaded Syria. He destroyed it. He's killed people with nerve gas, including his leading political opponent. Um, you know, for the president to simply say, in all honesty, he should not be in power doesn't move the needle a shred. What this speech ought to be remembered for, Wolf, is none of that. It ought to be remembered for the pledge to NATO by the United States. The president said, it's a sacred obligation. And more importantly, even than that, direct shot to Vladimir Putin, he said, 
don't even think about it. You know, that's American English, but it is a pretty clear signal. Don't even think about attacking a NATO country. That's the real message of this speech. Everything else is white noise. Yeah, but the White House immediately, uh, immediately within a half an hour or so, walked back what the president was saying. That was pretty awkward, wasn't it? I don't feel terribly awkward about it. You know, we've all, those of us who've been around you, me, we know Joe Biden. He's emotional. He thinks about things like we do, like a person does. And for him to say Putin should not be in power, normal human reaction. Again, what this speech was all about was reassuring Europe, focusing the American people on the importance of this. And by the way, putting a shot across Putin's bow, saying to the people in Russia who are starting to doubt, as I hope they are, whether Putin is taking them in the right direction. I thought it was a very effective speech overall, Wolf. Yeah, I was there, there in, in, uh, you know, in Warsaw listening very, very closely. In a recent op-ed in, uh, in Bloomberg, you say it's becoming increasingly clear that Putin uh, could resort to a nuclear or chemical attack because his effort to take over Kyiv, the capital, has stalled. You've said a chemical weapon would be more likely. Uh, here's what the president said today. Listen to this. You said a chemical weapon use by Russia would trigger a response in kind. It will trigger a significant response. What does that mean? I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? you got to be silly. The world wants to know? The world wants to know a lot of things. I'm not telling them what the response would be. Then, then Russia knows the response. So what do you think, Admiral? Is it better that Putin doesn't know how the U.S. would respond or would laying it out actually further deter him from launching some sort of chemical attack? I think you can make a case on both sides, but I'm going to go with strategic ambiguity here, Wolf. In other words, let Putin figure that out. We have too often in the course of this conflict with Russia said, oh, we won't do this. We won't do that. We will never think about doing that. I think it's time to let Putin be the one who's wondering what's coming next. And I'll give you a couple options. If Putin uses a chemical weapon, I would say uh, response number one is a NATO no-fly zone. Response number two, NATO troops around Lviv. Re NATO response number three, uh, cyber. We don't have to respond in kind with a chemical weapon. We're not going to do that. We don't use that. We can broaden this to respond in ways that will make Putin very uncomfortable. That's what we ought to be thinking about. Let's let Putin try and figure it out for a change. Strategic ambiguity, that's a, a, an, important, uh, an important policy to be sure. The, uh, the uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine, he seemed to offer some concessions ahead of these peace talks uh, that are supposed to take place tomorrow in Turkey, including that Ukraine would consider neutral status as part of some sort of peace deal, meaning pursuing NATO membership would be off the table. How significant is that? I think it's important, Wolf. And if you think about how this ends, Here's one for folks to go back and Google. Look at the Winter War with Finland, 1939. Russia invades Finland. The Finns fight him to a standstill, much the way the Ukrainians are. It ends with Finland taking neutral status, but Finland stays and sails on as an independent sovereign nation. The initial Russian intent in 1939 to dominate all of Finland. 
The Finns were ready. I think the Ukrainians were ready. We've helped them. I think that's probably how this ends up with some kind of neutral status. But we've got a long way to go. We've got to continue the fight. Above all, Wolf, we, the West, need to support the Ukrainians so they can create the conditions for a sensible settlement here. Yeah, you got to give the Ukrainians a lot of credit uh, over these, what, 30, first 33 days of this war. Admiral James Stavridis, uh, as usual, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Wolf. Coming up, escaping uh, the siege in Mariupol. Uh, families who could barely see out their car windshields are talking to CNN about the horrors they witnessed back home. And I'll be joined by a local official as the city's mayor accuses Russia's military of genocide. Yes, genocide. That's next. The mayor of Mariupol is urging a complete evacuation as he says the city is now in the hands of the occupiers. His words. That doesn't mean the city has necessarily fallen. He's referring to Russian troops that are now surrounding the area from all sides. 90% of the homes are damaged or completely destroyed after these first several weeks of fighting. I'll speak live with the Mariupol City Council deputy who fled with his family in just a few moments. Stand by for that. But first... Our senior international correspondent, Ivan Watson, talks to evacuees racing to get away from the attacks and their devastation. Shattered by Russian artillery, the windshield of a car that a Ukrainian family used to make their two-day escape from the besieged port city of Mariupol. We meet Natalia shortly after her family reaches relative safety in the parking lot of a superstore on the edge of the Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. The day before yesterday, an artillery shell hit our house, she says. Half of the house is gone. This is what was left. If Russia sees this, I want them to know that they aren't defending us. They are killing us because they seem to think they're defending us, and that's just not true. This parking lot, an unofficial gateway to Ukrainian-controlled territory for more than 70,000 Ukrainians who officials say fled Mariupol. The evacuees look shell-shocked. They arrive in vehicles draped with white rags and signs that say, children, and some, like four-year-old Alisa Isaeva, show up in yellow school buses. They were bombing us, she says. Bombing us with planes and tanks. Alisa's aunt Lilia says she suffered from a concussion for days after a strike hit her home. We walked among corpses. There were bodies under the evergreens. Soldiers without heads without arms, they're lying there. Nobody is gathering them. There was such fear that I felt like I was underwater. I wanted to wake up. And now I'm here, and this feels like some kind of a dream. Inside the superstore, volunteers and the city government are trying to help. Newly arrived evacuees are welcomed at this support center where they're offered warm meals, access to medics, and information about how to travel deeper into safer parts of Ukrainian territory. There's also a bulletin board here where some people are offering free repair of shattered car windows. And there are also 
postings here uh, looking for information about missing loved ones. For some who survived Russia's modern-day siege, this is the first hint of safety they've had in weeks. Outside, Yulia Mishodova and her son Stanislav have just arrived. And bear! Stanislav is chatty and upbeat, but his mother appears unsteady. When Russian warplanes bombed, she says, the family hid under the dining room table, surrounded by pillows. When the plane flew past, we were sheltering in the center of town. Until now, my ear still hurts from the shockwave. The unlikely safe haven provided in this parking lot is precarious. Ukrainian officials say Russian troops are positioned barely a half hour's drive away from here. And Ivan Watson is uh, with us right now. Uh, Ivan, as you uh, stated, these Russian troops are, what, only a half hour away from where many of these Ukrainian families are escaping to. How concerned are these families from Mariupol about their safety? Uh, uh, Very concerned, and especially because if you consider that their homes were being shelled for weeks, they were living in basements and trying to hide and run for cover, and then as they try to escape, they then have to go through the checkpoints manned by the same army that devastated and destroyed their whole city. Uh, I was at that same... uh, Superstore again today, uh, witnessing as as many uh, vehicles were coming in again, and some people said, "Okay, it's nice, it's quieter here, but I'm going to get going. I'm going to get moving because it does not feel safe here. We do hear air raid sirens. Uh, much of the locals' Aparizia population is staying, but the kind of people who've already fled Mariupol, they're not taking any chances. They want to go deeper into." Uh, safer parts of Ukraine, if there truly are safer parts of Ukraine, uh, given the scale of this terrible war. Or they can try to leave the country, uh, if still possible. Ivan Watson reporting for us. Ivan, be careful over there yourself. Uh, Thank you very, very much. Uh, I want to get to uh, Maxime Borodin right now. He's the city council deputy uh, in Mariupol, uh, and he's currently in western Ukraine. Uh, Thank you so much, Maxime, for for joining us. Uh, First of all, how are you and your family doing? I know you had surgery not too long ago. I'm doing okay in comparison with people who cannot leave the Mariupol because today and the last uh, three weeks in Mariupol it's uh, totally chaos and uh, our uh, prosperous and uh, modern city uh, is uh, today is totally burned and today totally destroyed. Most of the buildings are destroyed but buildings we can rebuild but the problems a lot of people i don't know a real count and no one knows because uh, no one can really because of war count these people but i think it's uh, more than uh, uh, officials tells uh, more than five thousand of people i think it's number above ten thousand because a lot of people are light under the ruins a lot of people are burned uh, when uh, uh, Russians' uh, planes are uh, bombed with uh, explosives bombs. And the uh, situation is now, is the main aim is to get uh, people from Mariupol, uh, get out from the city. And all the civilized world needs to help uh, Ukraine uh, to do this. 
we're showing our viewers the, the pictures of these residential areas, these apartment buildings, these schools, these hospitals that have totally been leveled, totally been destroyed with these Russian bombs. What do you make, uh, Maxime, of, of the, your mayor's comments that the city is now, and I'm quoting now, in the hands of the occupiers? What can you tell us about that? It's hard to say now the real situation in Mariupol, uh, but uh, a lot of Russian uh, um, Russian um, how to say militia uh, and uh, a lot a lot of them is occupied now in Mariupol. Mariupol is not totally uh, taken, but the situation now is we understand that the priority number one is to get out people from there because a lot of the people most of the people don't have water don't have food supply and uh, don't, don't have electricity for the three weeks so it's the main problem is humanitarian corridor but uh, russians don't let it uh, for ukrainian uh, side and they show the um, tv tv uh, picture that only they uh, evacuate people to the russian side but uh, most of the people who even evacuate to the Russian side, they do it uh, not because they love Russia, but because uh, they don't have any choice. And when they uh, need to choose between die and go to Russia, they choose go to Russia. So it's not their direct will in most of the times. What do you know, uh, Maxim, about uh, President Zelensky's claim that Russian forces took over more than 2,000 children out of your city, Mariupol? We only have uh, some pieces of information, but uh, in uh, I think it's uh, not affordable in the uh, uh, 21st century to take any, any, any uh, children or any, any adult man without their will to any other country. We live in Ukraine. And only you can, Ukrainian government, only local government, can choose uh, what to do with our people, not another country. It's not, it's not normal. As you know, and as you said, the people of Mariupol, they don't have electricity, they don't have heat, water, or supplies. What more can you tell us about the actual conditions on the ground for those Ukrainians who are still there? Condition is catastrophic. Uh, there are a lot of people died not even because of shelling, but because uh, of the health problem, because there are no medicine at all. Even uh, if uh, someone injured by the shelling or bombing, they can't get uh, real help in the medical uh, uh, building because uh, there are no medicine. Uh, as I know, uh, Russian side uh, try to uh, show on the TV that they uh, give uh, some food or some supplies, but we know uh, in real what is the amount of the supplies. Ukrainian side, we, um, how to say, about three weeks ago, we uh, get uh, a lot of um, buses and trucks to get help to Mariupol, but Russian side said no, only if the city totally surrendered. So it's, uh, they, they know what they're doing, and it's uh, catastrophic in 21st century to see like uh, people can uh, uh, take in a hostages the entire city. 
Maxime Boradine, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Maxime is the Mariupol City Council deputy. Good luck to you. Good luck to all the folks in Mariupol and throughout Ukraine right now. Uh, we wish you only, only the best. Thank you. Russia is also stepping up its invasion of Ukraine's cyberspace in hopes of further crippling the country. Russia attacked one of Ukraine's biggest telecom companies earlier today. We're going to take a closer look at the widening cyber warfare. The former U.S. Defense Secretary William Cohen, he's standing by live. We will discuss. There he is when we come back. Ukrainian officials now say one of the largest telecom providers in the country was hit with a powerful cyber attack today. Another apparent attempt by Russian hackers to disrupt phone and Internet communications inside Ukraine. Ukraine says the cyber attack was neutralized, but recovery from the hack continues. And that begs this question. As Russia's ground war stalls, could this be a precursor to a more destructive wide scale attack? Let's discuss uh, with the former U.S. Defense Secretary, William Cohen. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining us. Uh, as you know, Ukrainian officials say they've seen a wave of these cyber attacks on its infrastructure since the invasion began some 33 days ago. But what's surprising to so many experts is that it's been on a relatively smaller scale. If they have the capability to launch something more destructive, why do you think the Russians haven't done that already? Uh, maybe a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, they're worried that uh, the Ukrainians may be uh, having access to U.S. technology, which can help uh, prevent a, a more widespread uh, cyber attack. Uh, they have to be worried that uh, perhaps some of the technology that the United States and uh, the NATO countries have uh, could be given to the Ukrainians uh, to target them as well. Uh, a, a number of reasons why they haven't uh, gone to this level, because they've used it before in Georgia. Uh, they've used it before when uh, going into uh, Ukraine in, 19, in, in 2014. So this is not something that's uh, unique. I think they're calibrating, uh, is this the time to use it and what kind of defenses do the Ukrainians have? Can they, do they have the kind of resilience that they can bounce back once the attack uh, is, um, uh, is inflicted? Uh, we know that they used uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, tactics uh, in the French election. Uh, so they, they use cyber warfare as such uh, in social media, other ways of influencing people. But in terms of cutting off communications, uh, radio communication, telephone communications, and um, secure communications, uh, if they can. The, President Biden today said uh, he doesn't care what Putin thinks about his comments, uh, that he shouldn't uh, be in power in Russia. Uh, should he? I think Putin should care. I don't think he does. Uh, I think that Putin has one thing in mind only, and that is to crush uh, uh, the Ukrainian people, to destroy their country. If they don't uh, raise the white flag, then he's going to uh, try and level the country and just lay it to waste. Uh, it's a, I'm, I'm going to conquer this country, and whether you give up early or late, that's my goal. So I think President Biden is exactly right. Uh, I don't think the Russian people uh, should have a man like this uh, in uh, office uh, representing them and uh, directing them to a course of conduct uh, and uh, down the path of history, which is going to be, I think, disastrous for them in the long term. No, I think uh, that President Biden had it just right. The, the Kremlin spokesman, I don't know if you heard about this yet, Mr. Secretary, but just now just gave an interview to PBS and says Russia will only use nuclear weapons, and I'm quoting now, when there is a threat 
to Russia's existence and not as a response to the fighting in Ukraine. Uh, so do you take him at his word? I don't take anything coming out of uh, Moscow at this point. They've lied on every occasion that we've watched the military build up, the promise not to uh, invade, the promise not to target uh, innocent civilians, the leveling of, of hospitals, schools, uh, maternity wards, cancer wards. Uh, no, I don't take that any uh, of their words. I think all you have to do is follow what they're doing and then try and prevent it as best we can. We have to keep our eye on the prize, and that is giving the kind of weapons and equipment that uh, President Zelensky needs to defend his country. And it goes back to the days when uh, you were covering uh, DOD, I think when President Bush uh, 41 said he foresaw, hoped he would see a Europe that was whole, free, uh, and, and, uh, and prosperous, whole, free, and, uh, and at peace. Uh, well, as long as President Putin is going to continue to act the way he's hacking, acting, the European people will never be at peace. They may be whole or almost whole. Uh, they, um, they won't be at complete peace because President Putin is determined to go back and try to reconstruct uh, the Soviet empire under the Russian flag. So uh, that's something that we have to keep our eye on that. That's why uh, Bi President Biden needs to be praised for what he did, and that is to marshal the, the, the NATO uh, countries in a short period of time to get them all on board to say, we're going to suffer some of the other uh, heartache here as well. Prices are going to go up. We're going to have to bear that. But we cannot sit by and bear witness to the slaughter of innocent people by the thousands, the tens of thousands, and the displacement uh, of at least 10 million uh, Ukrainians. We can't do that in good, in good conscience. And that's what he was um, really revealing when he made the speech, which he's been criticized for. That's Joe Biden speaking from the heart. Do I think yeah. that uh, President Putin cares? I don't think he's influenced by words. He's only influenced by deeds. And that's what we're trying to do is help uh, help President Zelensky uh, defend his country. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago we thought the Cold War was over. Uh, not only is the Cold War back, but there's a real war going on in Europe right now, and it's awful. Secretary Cohen, thanks as usual for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, more on the exploding humanitarian crisis just ahead. We're going to take you to Poland. Uh, that's where more than half of the nearly four million Ukrainian refugees are now turning for safety and shelter. But is there a limit to how many more people they can handle? We'll have details when we come back. So many Ukrainian refugees are fleeing into Poland that the population in Warsaw alone has increased by some 20 percent. And with cities like Mariupol calling for total evacuations, that number could surge even higher. Our senior national correspondent, Kyung La, takes us inside a Warsaw convention hall that's packed with as many as 10,000 Ukrainian refugees at any given time. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can help five-year-old Jan understand how he and his mother ended up here, a packed convention hall in Warsaw, Poland, filled with thousands of Ukrainians. He's constantly afraid. He's always afraid. He's afraid to sleep alone, says his mother, Katya Krush, after nights in this basement, as Russian missiles leveled his neighborhood two hours north of Kiev. Everything is fine, she tells him. So do you, um, when you... Are you sure there's nothing flying here, he asks. 
they even don't know why they are here. They think uh, maybe they came for some kind of vacation or it's... They don't comprehend yeah. because they're too young. They are too young. Multiply Jan by thousands of people a day, and that's who Tomas Shapua is trying to help at what's now the largest Ukrainian refugee hub in all of Europe, with up to 7,000 refugees here a day. I must work, you know, and I, I, I don't have to think about such a things too much because it's, 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 it's really difficult and it's, it's a tragedy. You'll see that's, that's, it's better not to think about that. The 1.5 million square foot expo is now a gateway to the rest of the world, where after crossing into Poland, refugees begin the real process, finding a temporary life beyond war. They're waiting to go somewhere. Estonia. They're getting to Estonia. Those with no destination yet, wait. How long has this been going on? It's uh, less than a month. Less than a month. That becomes more challenging as the war stretches on. Thank you, Warsaw, says this woman in Ukrainian, one of the more than two million Ukrainian refugees who have arrived in Poland, more than 300,000 in Warsaw alone. The Polish people will welcome Ukrainians, whatever happens, because they are fighting for our freedom, and we do understand that. But of course, there is a certain limit, human limit, uh, what we can what we can do. When you say you're at capacity, what do you mean? We've offered as a country free education, free healthcare to all of our guests, which of course means that you know our schools uh, are going to be filled within weeks, that our hospitals are going to jam. Uh, Warsaw's mayor says no one will be turned away, but he needs help to help Jan, his mother, and the people of Ukraine. The Polish people accepted us well, she says. Good people. Good people. Yeah, good people. And Kyung Laws joining us now live from Warsaw. Kyung, uh, we just heard the mayor of Warsaw. I, too, spoke with him uh, in Warsaw on Saturday when I was there. He says there's this human limit on what they can do to, to, to provide the help that these folks need. What more can you tell us about the crush this has actually put on the city of Warsaw. Uh, well, the, the mayor, when he was talking about those numbers, actually boiled it down in a very simple way, in a, a very understandable way, I think, for most Americans. He said that in his city of Warsaw, there are now 30 percent more school-aged children, children who need to go to school, than there were a month ago. So if you imagine your child's schoolroom, imagine it being 30 percent bigger the strain on textbooks, what kids need, what the teacher has to do, the chairs you have to provide. That is one snapshot of the strain on the city. Expand that out now to everything else that the city has to provide for these Ukrainian refugees, the the social help, the psychological help, the structure, all of it. And so that's what the mayor is talking about, the strain on the city. And despite that, Wolf, and you know this from walking around this beautiful city, is you're not seeing anybody sleeping on the streets or tents in the street despite the influx of the city. And that is truly remarkable. They just don't know how long they can keep this up. Yeah, got to give those Polish people a lot of credit taking in these millions of refugees, mostly women and children and the elderly, the men between the ages of 18 and 60. They're behind. They're fighting in Ukraine. Kyung La in Warsaw for us. Excellent report. Thank you very, very much.
Here at home, uh, the January 6th Select Committee has just voted to advance a contempt of Congress referral for two more former Trump aides. A panel uh, member is here, fresh off that vote. We will discuss when we come back. More on the ground uh, coverage in Ukraine coming up in a few moments. But we turn now to other breaking news from the January 6th Select Committee. Members voting just moments ago to recommend criminal contempt of Congress charges against uh, then-President Trump's former Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino and former White House uh, Trade Advisor Peter Navarro. They would become the third and fourth uh, former Trump aides to face potential criminal charges, as opposed to the more than 750 people who have cooperated with the Select Committee. Representative Elaine Luria sits on the January 6th Select Committee. She's joining us now. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. I know you called on the Attorney General to, quote, do your job. What what makes you think he's any more likely to move on these two uh, cases, uh, given that he hasn't charged, for example, Mark Meadows, who the House referred to the Department of Justice for contempt more than three months ago? Well, Wolf, it's incredibly important, uh, first of all, that you know people uphold their constitutional duty when a subpoena is uh, preferred, that people have a duty to show up and to speak to Congress. And you know it's a little baffling to understand why three months later, um, we're, we're still waiting for action on that one, um, these two new um, contempt charges that we're preferring. You know, these are people who were very close to the president. And as I said during the hearing, it seems as the closer and closer we're getting uh, to the president's inner circle, the more people are not speaking. What are they covering up? And, you know, the truth is, is that we need these to be acted on quickly so we can get information. You mentioned earlier, it's actually 800 people now who've come before the committee. Um, They haven't objected uh, to subpoenas or even informal requests. They've come forward willingly, people in the former administration, to provide information because, you know, the work of the committee is important. We can't let something like this happen again to overrun the halls of the Capitol in an attempt to, you know, prevent the transfer of power peacefully. I know your committee, this is related, uh, didn't make a a decision on whether to interview Ginny Thomas, the wife of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Why no decision? What more do you need uh, to know in order to make this decision? Well, you know, as with other potential witnesses, we don't comment ahead of time for all 800 witnesses we've reached out to. There's many people who have valuable information for the committee, and we hope to hear from all of them. Um, So there's really nothing, um, you know, that I can say specifically about this witness um, or, you know, any other potential witnesses who might be coming in the future. Senator Blumenthal uh, suggested you may need to speak with Uh, Justice Thomas himself, uh, given the evidence you've seen so far, Congresswoman, should the committee speak with the Supreme Court Associate Justice? Um, There is no evidence specifically presented to the committee at this point um, that would lead us in that direction. But of course, uh, he, like his wife, if he has information that he thinks is meaningful for the committee, um, we would like to, to have him share that information with us as well. Should Justice Thomas uh, though recuse himself from any cases involving the committee, for example? So as far as cases in Supreme Court justices, um, you know, it is really their discretion and their role on the bench to decide um, if there's a conflict of interest. Um, Justice Thomas has not recused himself so far. Um, So, you know, I would leave that to him to explain why he made that decision in any case that could be construed to be related to the events of January 6th. 
one federal judge today said, and I'm quoting now, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6th. 2021. A month ago, it was your committee saying, and I'm quoting, Mr. Trump and others may have engaged in criminal and or fraudulent acts. What more could the Department of Justice need to open up a formal criminal investigation? Well, you know, the citing that you uh, read there was relative to a case for documents from um, Dr. Eastman, who's a lawyer who cracked uh, came up with these crackpot kind of conspiracy theories of how we, we could overturn the election. And that was to um, have the judge rule uh, to turn over emails uh, relative to his activities surrounding January 6th and promoting these false conspiracy theories. Um, you know, we are a legislative committee that is designed to determine the events leading up to January 6th and provide legislative recommendations to prevent something like that from happening in the future. So I really can't comment on right. any investigations that the Justice Department has ongoing, um, but I know that um, they will seek to hold anyone accountable who's broken the law. Congresswoman Luria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thanks very much for watching. A special invitation. Log on tomorrow night for the premiere of the newscast with Wolf Blitzer only on our brand new streaming uh, network, CNN Plus. That debuts 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can sign up at cnnplus.com. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.